0: The worldwide media attention is focused right now on South Africa at the BRICS meeting. Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, and many other countries of the global south are meeting together. Have we entered a new era of global politics? We need a new system. We need a new society. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking with Michaela Nondo Erskog. She is a member of the Secretariat of Pan-Africanism Today. She's a researcher at Tri-Continental Institute for Social Research. She is a member of No Cold War and the host of the podcast, The Crane, an Africa-China podcast, coming from the Dongsheng News Collective. Mika, welcome back to The Socialist Program.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to join.
0: Thank you. Mika, as I mentioned, you know, the BRICS countries and BRICS is a fairly new association of major emerging countries in the Global South, Russia, China, India, Brazil, South Africa. They're meeting in South Africa. This is their 15th summit world media attention is focused very heavily on the meeting. And even though the BRICS countries say, all of them, they go out of their way, or I think most of them at least, go out of their way to say, we are not the anti-hegemonic contradiction or negation of the G7. We are not a counter pole. We are not that. We are just emerging countries from the global South that have something in common with each other. If you look at the media coverage from most of the G7 countries, meaning the countries of Western Europe, Japan, and the United States, the media attention is treating this BRICS summit and the BRICS formation as an enemy. Why do you think that is?
1: So I think there are a variety of great reasons why, but I think I can highlight a couple in terms of economic reasons as well as kind of sh- a shifting mood geopolitically. So one is, if we look in economic terms, and a lot of coverage has been on the fact that the BRICS countries together combined, their combined share of the global GDP as of 2022 was 31.6%, whilst the G7 countries was around 30 point, 30.7, I think. Yes, 30.7. And so we've seen this massive growth in economic material terms, this massive growth in their share and their control of the world economy, which of course, you know, is disruptive to the Western and U.S. predominantly led hegemonic block of the global north. That's one. Two is that I think we're also seeing, even though I don't think there's necessarily any kind of political unity, as you know, up until last year when Lula came back into power, we had two significant countries, Brazil and India, led by right-wing conservative governments, we also know that south africa isn't necessarily the strongest economically but even though there's no unified ideology that's necessarily driving the process there is a kind of minimum new mood and minimum shared common frustration around having been sidelined through common experiences of colonialism of neo-colonialism that Folks want to figure out ways of reorganizing themselves in a way that can advance their national domestic interests, which again, I agree uh, with those who are saying it's more national interests that hold them in common, not necessarily like a bigger regional project or even an anti-imperialist project, not necessarily the case, but there's definitely an interesting mood and especially coming from those who want to join, those who want to be part of the expansion. I want to mention one of them is, you know, Indonesia is an extremely interesting case You know, Indonesia is the fourth most populous country in the world, has seen huge economic developments, has a very interesting, charismatic president, Yoko Widodo, who very recently said, you know, urged his citizens to, we need to abandon Visa and MasterCard. Look what happened to Russia. And so I think a lot of countries are seeing or are are finally agreeing that the financial hegemony from the U.S.-led Western Bloc is a serious impediment to national development, at minimum national development. And uh, by the way, the Indonesian president as well has been pursuing interesting, I think, development strategies where they're trying to strengthen their SOE sector to model it on the Chinese model that I think China has about... Must be around 40 or so SOEs that are on the Forbes 500. And I think there's only one Indonesian.
0: And SOE for our audiences?
1: State-owned enterprises. So we're seeing this interest in state-driven new development models that I think are having a lot of resonance in what we call a Tricontinental, the global south more broadly. So I think this is one of the key impacts of BRICS, particularly in this moment where everyone has seen If you cross the U.S. and its NATO military, you essentially will receive serious, you know, financial sanctions, economic warfare of the highest degree. And folks don't want to be recipients of that, as well as they have seen the failure of IMS and World Bank policies to bring any lasting or structural change to their societies.
0: The meeting that's taking place in South Africa, as I mentioned, is the 15th Summit of BRICS. And it takes place in the context of the 18-month-long war taking place in Ukraine. It was February 2022 that Russia carried out what it calls the Special Military Operation, what the rest of the world calls the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Certainly that was, and we said on our show that that marked a turning point, that the era that had begun in global politics with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the overthrow of the socialist governments in Eastern Europe, the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact, the breakup of what was then called the socialist camp, a rival to the capitalist camp. So when the Soviet Union dissolved, that camp basically dissolved. And so we had an era which we called, and many people called the era of unipolar power, which was perhaps an exaggeration. And maybe it was aspirational on the part of the United States that it could exercise unipolar power everywhere. It got bogged down in Afghanistan, Iraq, et cetera, et cetera. And as a consequence during this 30 year period, you have other countries, especially Russia and China, which together, had constituted the two major powers during the Cold War in the socialist camp, at least for the first 20 years after the Chinese Revolution, those countries sort of got stronger. They emerged as growing economies. They wanted to go along with the world order. They weren't trying to pick a fight with the United States, but obviously Russia felt that the United States was picking a fight with Russia. And there was the coup in Ukraine in 2014 and then what Russia believed that NATO was going to expand and include Ukraine so that advanced US NATO missiles would be right on Russia's border, targeting Russia, missiles that Russia couldn't defend against. And so it took this action, it invaded. So we said, well, this is a new era of global politics. Now, I was talking to Vijay Prashad, who you work with at TriContinental Research, And he said, well, it is a new period, but he was reluctant to give it a name. He said, some people call it an era of multipolarity, but he said, we don't know yet, it's not clear. And BRICS isn't trying to be a mimic or a imitation of the socialist bloc. One, it cannot. It doesn't have the same political coherence, as you mentioned but it doesn't aspire or at least the leaders say they don't aspire to do that. So let's just put this in context. We're in a new era of global politics, meaning the era of unipolar power is over. Obviously, Russia is now openly in confrontation with the West, but we haven't completely seen what the new era is shaping up to be because of all of these divergent agendas. So with all of that said, I I just want to frame that so that I want to get your take. Where are we in terms of global politics, geostrategic politics?
1: So I wish I had like a very neat and clean answer, but the term that comes to mind is one given by Antonio Gramsci on the interregnum of, we seem to be in a period where the old has not yet quite died, but the new is not yet born. But we can, I think, see just based on the combined like economic The share of the global economy, we can see some trends that in terms of the economy, there's definitely a qualitative shift that could allow for new opportunities, new vehicles to arise already in the last few years, along with BRICS, which, you know, initially emerged from IBSA when in 2003, we had Brazil, India and South Africa trying to trade around key pharmaceutical drugs. Particularly for HIV medication and other, you know, curable ailments, and due to certain strict intellectual property rights through the World Trade Organization, they were unable to do that kind of trade without significant costs. And so, at that time, there was a the sense that there's a frustration with the existing system already in 2003. Of course, already for decades now, if we're thinking about the national liberations. But by the time that BRICS emerges, we soon after that start to see things like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. We've seen just, was it in 2019? Remind me, was it 2020 when the group of friends in defense of the UN Charter, where we have, is it 17 or so countries? I don't recall precisely, but it must be under 20 countries that are friends of the UN Charter who are basically saying that there are certain core principles That are minimum agreements in the world that we need to be working harder on. And so I think the the creation of these new vehicles and locomotives helps to see that there is a a desire for something different, but whether or not it will take a you know immediate qualitative effect is yet to be seen. But I will say that again, even if we take out China, if we look at what we consider the global south and the global north economies, which I'm sure in the future we should have a detailed discussion about what we think are the global south and global north. But in the grouping that we're using at tricontinental, the global south, even if you take China out, has a greater share of the global GDP and PPP terms than the global north. And I think it's, it's only like a few percentage drops. It's like 40.9 or so versus 40.4. And then the rest is countries that don't necessarily have up-to-date economic data. But we're seeing that the global south in itself is asserting itself, has, as you've seen in through the Ukraine moment, many global South countries have not chosen to agree to sanction Russia in the UN. Many, particularly African countries, did not vote, even though they were slightly outvoted, they did not vote on the initial, what was the initial resolution? Remind me again?
0: Condemning the Russian invasion.
1: Right. Condemning. People or groups like South Africa chose to, to abstain. And so, the fact that people, it's not necessarily in support of Russia or China per se. I think that's a misreading. I think it's in support of not wanting to be a lackey of the US as they have been in the past. And what is an interesting point that I think we're trying to do a lot more research on is that within the global self, there are some distinct trends happening among certain countries that we need to seriously look closely at in order to evaluate then what the future impact of these things are. And we kind of have like four or five groups where there are a few very, a small handful of what we consider socialist independent countries, which includes China, Vietnam, Venezuela, Laos, Cuba, DPRK. Then we also have countries that are strongly sovereign, who are people like Russian, you know, Iran, even Mali, Burkina Faso, those who are asserting their sovereignty, for a variety of reasons. We also have historically progressive countries like Brazil, like Zimbabwe, who have held certain progressive positions in terms of having like a, not necessarily following the US line. And then we also have these interesting new non-aligned countries like Mexico, like Turkey, like Saudi Arabia, who again are in many ways saying no to the US on certain fronts, but it's not saying that they are trying to build an anti-imperialist agenda. And then we have, the rest of the world. So I think there are trends that are worth examining in greater detail to try to consider what are the possibilities that a BRICS-led world, not BRICS-led world, let's say BRICS is almost like the older sibling who has to do the first few rebellions so the younger siblings can have a easier time, you know, getting out of the house from the parents, etc. So I think that it's kind of striking out in a very needed moment and holding firm when there needs to be some kind of leadership against the U.S.-led hegemonic Western Bloc.
0: I want to try to focus in and keep this part of our discussion going, Mika, to help people, especially on the left, get a more precise understanding of what it is that we're talking about. Because there's hyperbole and exaggeration and mischaracterization from several different fronts. For instance, I was watching, and I would recommend people watch the interview that Vijay Prashad, your colleague, did on Democracy Now!, where he was explaining some of the points that you're explaining, that the BRICS countries constitute major emerging countries and economies in the formerly colonized or semi-colonized part of the world. They're finding each other. They don't like the current world order, which, you know, dominates everything. Mm for the advantage of a few Western countries, the old colonizers, the older imperialist countries, such that, for instance, as you said, in 2003, India is the largest producer of pharmaceutical products probably anywhere in the world. They had the ability to supply South Africa and Brazil, which were suffering greatly from HIV AIDS. They could provide them with medicines, the HIV cocktail, And yet, because of intellectual property rights, so-called, held by monopoly corporations, multinational corporations based in the West, based in the old colonizing part of the world, they couldn't supply those medicines. So they're trying to find a way. How do we come together? How do we overcome this stranglehold over vitally needed materials like pharmaceuticals in a moment of great crisis where literally millions of people were dying from AIDS? still, this is 2003, those countries find each other, they try to form an association, eventually that morphs into BRICS. And so we have this countries finding each other, not because they're ideologically anti-imperialist per se, and some of them are not anti-imperialist at all, but they exist as big countries, as big economies with large populations, and they want to be treated with respect and dignity and they don't want to be dictated to by the so-called international rules-based order or whatever the imperialist like sort of moniker is designated. They want to find each other. So it's not simply ideological. In fact, it's not ideological. And in that sense, it's not an anti-imperialist block, certainly not explicitly. And some on the left say, see, you people who, are th- who think BRICS is important, You're sort of putting on rose colored glasses and thinking this is the new anti imperialist bloc when clearly India or Turkey or whatever, Saudi Arabia certainly are not really progressive governments at all. But what we're saying, what you're saying, what Vijay was saying, which I think is so important to have sort of a precise understanding, is it's not necessarily a socialist project, but that doesn't mean it's not important for huge parts of the planet and huge parts of the world's population. Anyway, go ahead.
1: Thank you for summarizing it so neatly, because I think that's part of the point. And anyone who calls themselves a genuine, if I may, a Marxist will want to understand that shifts like this lead to certain changes in the correlation of forces, in the balance of forces. And if we can shift it away from U.S. hegemony We have more opportunities to pursue certain forms of national development that can, and for many of us hope, take a socialist form or socialist nature. I mean, for example, let's take the question of Indonesia. It's one of the biggest uh, nickel producers. I think it has like a third of, or even slightly higher than, a third of world nickel production as well as it has significant amounts of bauxite it has significant amounts of tin and the president he recently announced that they wanted to ban all raw exports of some of these key products essentially the banning would mean that you'd have more investment in industrializing the industries and value adding and creating not just selling the raw materials that's part of you know our resource curse which is you know a big thing on the african continent where i hail from but it has the potential to build enough economic capacity for people to make more independent decisions that don't rely on having to crawl to the IMF for loans that actually don't go towards infrastructure, don't go towards any kind of you know public service. But actually, most of them, as I'm sure you're aware and some of your audiences might be aware, I think it's most African countries spend 60% servicing their debts. So any kind of loan or financing they receive, they are paying back interest on previous loans and not actually building the infrastructure. And BRICS, for example, even though it explicitly with the creation of the new development bank in 2015, said that they don't want to have any conditionalities. And despite the limitation, because I think up to date, up until March, I think it was only 32 billion had been approved. And I think less than half has been Actualized, like it hasn't. It's been approved, but it hasn't gotten into motion. So there are serious limitations to structures of the BRICS, like the NDB, like the Contingent Reserve Arrangement, which basically has like a hundred billion that's supposed to be going towards countries who struggle with their international reserves or who have liquidity issues, and that hasn't actually been activated at all. Which I think is still there's still time for that process to mature and for it to develop, but. Going back to the point about the correlation of forces, if countries like Indonesia, like Burkina Faso, who recently, you know, announced that they want to industrialize their gold and tomato industry, like they have big gold reserves, and they don't want to be exporting it as raw materials anymore. They wanna, you know, industrialize and create processing power to create higher value added products. And in the process, by doing so, significantly shifts their ability to pursue their domestic interests. So I think it's it's a mistake to dismiss processes and structures like BRICS who in economic terms can make certain significant shifts to the world economy and to trade and to technological transfer and to infrastructural development, etc. And we've already seen just based on the China-Africa relationship, there are over, you know, 44 countries that are part of the BRI, who basically have been getting significant funding and infrastructural opportunities that have shifted a country's ability to make more sovereign domestic policies about how their economies run. But if they continue to be beholden on the IMF and have to service debts instead of, you know, Kenya has struggled a little bit with the railway that was built by the Chinese a few years ago because they simply just didn't have a greater economic plan domestically, that could integrate the railway system with the kind of maybe transport of certain processed commodities rather than just the raw materials that keep leaving the country. So that's my roundabout way of saying it's a mistake if you don't see this as a significant potential advance in terms of the correlation of forces that largely has benefited the U.S. and the global north at the, what's the opposite of benefit?
0: Expense.
1: At the expense. Expense
0: at the expense of the global south it's been a one way street it's been we take you give and you know you could see that you know since the dawn of capitalism as marx himself even back in in the first volume of capital in 1867 writes that capitalism flourished and the bourgeoisie grew because of world trade but the premise the essence of world trade starting in the 15th century, was the trade in human beings and the trade of kidnapped Africans. And so this we take, you give relationship that's gone on, you know, you can say 1492 is a marker, you could find some other markers, but it's been extraction and exploitation of a big part of the world, the majority of the world's population, by a very small part of the world. And, you know, I think it's so important, Mika, what what you're saying and what Tri Continental is emphasizing with your very excellent newsletters. I hope everybody subscribes because you're rooted in not rhetoric, not shrill rhetoric. Yes, people are socialists. Yes, we are Marxists. But Tri Continental is premised on a very deeply objective capacity using facts. An investigation in order to derive sort of generalizations about what's going on in the world. And the reality is, if you have most of the world, I mean, the biggest part now of the world GDP is in these BRICS countries, let's call them the G5. And then over here, you have the G7, which are the imperialists from Western Europe, the United States, Canada, and Japan. And now this historic shift has happened where. The GDP produced by these emerging major but still global South countries surpasses that of the former colonizers but still imperialist bloc, that's huge, but these countries are still basically denominating their trade in the world reserve currency, which is the dollar. And so the US uses its privilege of having the treasury department of the united states print dollars which are then everyone else's reserve currency for the basis of world trade it clearly doesn't make any sense that you know when china and india china and brazil brazil and india indonesia and south africa are doing trade that they have to use the world reserve currency the dollar and then the country that actually prints the dollars uses the dollar as a weapon So you have scores of countries that are cut off from credit and finance and punished and unable to even access basic goods through world trade because the domination of the dollar allows the US to sanction countries, threaten insurance companies that would, say, rent a boat so that Venezuelan oil could come to Cuba, which is actually happening. So this struggle for Economic independence is a long march, so to speak. And it's not easy because these different countries who are in the main ruled by their own capitalist ruling classes that want to be independent don't want to be treated, you know, as semi-slaves by the West. They also have their own agendas, they have their own relationship with imperialist powers, they don't want to be an anti-hegemonic bloc. So Some of these processes haven't really, you know, sort of succeeded yet. Like the the idea of another currency. So yes, some of the BRICS countries are bartering with each other. They're using, they're swapping currencies, but BRICS as of yet has not created an alternative to the dollar. And it's not easy to create an alternative to the dollar, even though in a way everyone aspires to have an alternative. Let's talk about some of those problems.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we have an ongoing argument, a tricon between the Latin Americans who say that BRICS is going to inaugurate a new reserve currency and that'll be, it's going to happen soon. And with the more conservative views who don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. What I saw of the official communications from the BRICS spokespeople was that they won't be discussing the reserve currency in this meeting, just to kind of end any chatter about that. But I think one area that I'm hoping to see some progress on is the question you already raised of exchanges in local currency. Currently in the BRICS, amongst the BRICS countries, I think it's 68% of their payments and you know shifts and movements of money is US dollars, 68%, two thirds. And I think amongst them, the main BRICS countries combined, they're only at around 22% of the share of their currency exchanges. So they're hoping to shift that up, I think, to 30% by 2030, which is relatively ambitious, particularly in this kind of post pandemic recovery period. But I still worry about how soon a reserve currency would be created. One, because as you pointed out, Who would want to partner with Russia means though that certain international credit rating agencies have rated some of the countries a bit lower. So, you know, they don't have access to to credit as easily as like Western countries that largely trade in the dollar. The other thing is that I do think there needs to be a little bit more political drive behind a project like that. Even though there are clear economic benefits, there still is, I think, a lack of that political will to achieve that. I mean, when these discussions have been happening, I just keep thinking about when the African Union was formed in 1963, or it was then the Organization for African Unity, there was a big political split that disallowed for things like a common currency to materialize. And we've seen that a lack of creating an alternative has had hugely devastating impacts on the African continent. I mean, it's only now with Niger and Mali and Burkina Faso that there's a serious questioning of the fact that till this day, most West African countries are part of the African financial community, which actually was previously, it had the same acronyms, the CFA. Previously, it was called France's African community or the French African community. And it was only changed like in the late 80s. But essentially, they continue to use the CFA franc, which is benchmarked against the French franc. And most of its currency is sitting in the Banque de France or whatever the Bank of France is called in French. And so I think that if an alternative currency is going to be created, I think it will need a lot more political will and political cohesion, which perhaps expansion could make that push more likely. As we said, the Indonesians are keen to abandon the Visa Mastercard systems. We've heard Lula mention ever. I mean, the third day he was in office, he basically came out against, you know, the U.S. dollar and called for de-dollarization. But I think it will need a lot more politics rather than economic motivations to kind of get it happening and happening sooner.
0: You mentioned BRI earlier, and that's the Belt and Road Initiative. So. The Belt and Road Initiative was a major project initiated by the Chinese government, basically to create an alternative to Western-dominated economic and trade institutions that China is also a part of, but China clearly was trying to go in a different direction, especially, I think, the 2008-2009 capitalist financial meltdown on Wall Street that impacted and devastated so much of the world was a real shocker to countries in the global South, including China, who were so heavily invested. I mean, China's heavily invested in U.S. treasuries. I mean, China has trillions of dollars of U.S. investments. As a matter of fact, China, in a way, is financing U.S. debt. U.S. debt is off the charts. After military spending, which is almost a trillion or perhaps even more than a trillion a year, COVID, the bailout of the banks, all of that that's taken place just in the last 15 years. I think China was like, okay, we can't certainly put all of our eggs into this basket. There was obviously a reconsideration about China's own orientation. Maybe this is what created so much animus and hostility against China after it sort of went its own way. Again, not trying to recreate a socialist bloc, not trying to export socialist revolution. That's clearly not what China's trying to do. China's mainly worried about its own economic development, but it's interacting, say, with Africa. I want to go back to what you had mentioned about Kenya, but not focus on Kenya. I mean, the Belt and Road Initiative essentially offers countries in the global south in particular, but not just the global south. They also included countries in Europe, including Ukraine, for instance, an alternative to the Western dominated economic model. And the way it differed was sort of the way you were pointing out that when the IMF, the World Bank, or especially Western banking institutions lend money to countries, they wanna have collateral. And if those governments are unable for, sometimes no fault of their own, let's say there's a downturn in the world economy. And if you have an export driven economy, you can't sell your products abroad. You can't pay your debt back. Then the IMF and the Western banking institutions say, fine, we'll roll over your debt. But in exchange, you have to give us more, give us more collateral. You have to pay higher interest so that you're paying a lot of your national economic profits basically back to western banks or you give us other collateral like give us your water system give us your sanitation system give us your you know electrical system the structural adjustment programs were basically telling third world countries or countries that we used to call third world you know you have to basically come under our dictates about how your economic progress will go forward and much of that was only to the benefit of the west so the belt and road initiative says to Africa in particular, but elsewhere, we're going to give you credit and we're going to help you develop infrastructure, for instance. And our goal is not to maximize profits. And our goal certainly is not to saddle you with debt that you have to then service, meaning pay a higher interest rate later. It's really what the Chinese call win-win. And you know that's treated very cynically in the Western media, like that's not really win-win, it's just China winning. But what China's saying is, look, we're going to give you a different kind of deal. Yes, we, the Chinese, get something. We get access to resources, to world markets. We're not isolated. We're not under the domination of the US. But you get something in return, too, which is a different deal than what the West offered. Now, in Western media, and even some in the so called left, a term that's becoming less and less meaningful, they say that China is a new colonizer because of the Belt and Road Initiative in Africa or elsewhere. Just, again, I want to spend another minute or two talking about why this is indeed a different deal.
1: Sure thing. I mean, some quick numbers. To date, I think it might be slightly different, but around 151 countries are BRI members or have signed some form of a memorandum of agreement with China since it began in the 2013 it's 10 years since bri was initiated in in kazakhstan if i'm not mistaken and so a couple of things is one of the i think of the total like value of projects from 2013 to 2023 in the last 10 years it's calculated around 962 billion or so and i think two thirds of that around 570 billion has gone to construction contracts whilst the rest has gone into like non-financial investments. The African states are not accountable to China in terms of what they do once the kind of contracts have been issued and when certain money has been dispersed. When it is a Chinese contractor who's producing it, you see tangible results. We've seen, you know, there's these numbers that I think are quite remarkable, but often don't get shared so often is that it's like, you know, over 100,000 kilometers of rail and highways that have been constructed. Or built by China since 2000, which I'm adding 2000, even though the BRI technically is 2013, but it's the preceding period that allows BRI to be more viable because it built up, you know, bridges, 100 ports, I think it's like 80 or so large scale power facilities that were then able to support the expansion of certain BRI activities, but also has created things like medical facilities, schools, certain public infrastructure that Africa so desperately needs. But in terms of the actual you know, financing, what we see, as you pointed out, is that there are no conditionalities around how you have to now change your economic policy to essentially serve a foreign agenda or in the case of a Western agenda. We see no push towards privatization of common resources that has historically been linked with IMF and World Bank loans. We also see that interest rates are generally lower we also see that the maturing period is a lot longer. We've seen a hell of a lot of debt forgiveness on low interest loans, which might and the economists always draw this hard line that say, well, actually that's it's small numbers in terms of what has been forgiven, but it still is a form of like, you know, diplomacy, of trying to build trust, trying to build relationships that there are certain things that can be done. And I do think that it has in some countries, especially like countries like Ethiopia. Have been really transformed by different projects and different infrastructural projects that have come through BRI. And so it isn't kind of small or piecemeal type of things. These are significant changes. However, the limitation again is that on the African continent, we don't have a unified continental project or even certain unified regional projects. We do have, I think the African continent has the most different regional bodies so we have like the ECOWAS which many of you would have heard in the news the economic community of west africa we have SADC which is the southern african development community there there are so many different regional projects that don't necessarily have a strong ideological center and an ideological driving force that unifies them and so what we've seen is that and we can't again rely on an outsider or china or anyone to give us direction we have to do that ourselves but we have seen that through the bri and even through the forum on china africa cooperation which is another platform that gets significant financing and you know different projects are ongoing around technological exchange medical exchange etc but we do see the limitation that african heads of state have not developed coherent state led development projects that are coordinated at regional or continental levels, and therefore some of the projects that could have, I think, longer-lasting impact for things like the recently created African AFRICTA, the African Continental Trade Economic Zone, something like that, which right now kind of just looks like a few agreements and arrangements, but it doesn't seem like there's strategic sectors that they will focus then there. Foreign policy ambitions in a coordinated fashion. So that always leaves the continent wanting in that sense. And that I would say is a serious limitation, but ultimately, that's not the fault per se of BRI. It's our own historically inherited divisions that we are yet to overcome.
0: Mm, Interesting. So BRI, Belt and Road Initiative, which is China's economic and trade initiative on a global basis, is thriving, it continues. So you have like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, you have BRICS, you have Belt and Road Initiative, you have many sort of new platforms and alliances or multilateral institutions that are emerging in the global south or what used to be the colonized and semi-colonized parts of the world. And Mika, if we think back to how, again, big picture, how the world is shifting and changing. The Berlin Conference of 1884, 1885, which is, you know, 140 years ago, those imperialist countries, the G7 plus a few more, sat at a table and took a map of Africa and divided up Africa for themselves, for their own exploitation and plunder and looting and pillaging. And, you know, Niger that recently had the coup... I mean, that's how Niger becomes part of the French colonial project is from that Berlin conference. The imperialists peacefully between themselves, they didn't go to war with each other like they did in World War I or World War II. They peacefully divided the market amongst themselves. And so Africans were sort of subjected to their domination. And in 18 years, between 1884 and 1902, with the exception of Ethiopia, almost all African self-governance disappeared within this really tiny period. And so now you have a situation where, you know, 120 years after 1902, Africa is still divided, but it's no longer colonized, not formally, and it's trying to break free. There's no African country that has a permanent seat at the UN Security Council where, Five, the P5 have veto power. There's no country from Latin America, another colonized continent, no seat at the Security Council. And now we see that even though the left in many parts of the world was basically devastated earlier, but especially after the collapse of the socialist camp, the manifestation, the yearning, the aspiration to be free from a system which was so terrible for the indigenous peoples of Africa or Latin America, that yearning, that aspiration doesn't go away. It finds some other outlet. So we have recently coups in Niger, Burkina Faso. You know, we have, even though they're not coming through communist parties, the idea of self-governance, the idea of self-determination, the idea of being the masters of one's own destiny, these kind of universal human aspirations keep showing themselves but in a different world a world where there isn't a socialist camp maybe if it had happened 40 or 50 years ago some of these countries would have gravitated as fidel and cuba did in 1959 in the direction of the socialist camp but i i want to as we sort of get towards the end here i want to talk a little bit more about this struggle in africa let me play a clip it's from npr Americans are getting so much arrogance, hubris, and racism in their media coverage that they don't understand like why Africa has a certain view towards the Ukraine war or Africans have a certain view towards the Ukraine war, which does not dovetail with Western propaganda. And as a consequence, it's caricatured in Western media. Listen, if we have the NPR clip, I want to play it. It's only 12 seconds long. How many countries would want to belong to a club that has Russia as a member? The answer is quite a few. They're showing interest in joining BRICS, the group of world economies that includes Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. So here's the NPR question. What countries would ever want to be with Russia? And I'm thinking like, well, all of Africa was already with France. They were with, you know, the United States. They were with Britain. And those countries horribly exploited Africa and Africans for centuries. And the idea that Africans would not gravitate or want to be a part of an association that included Russia is so arrogant and so racist in a way because it's sort of the West's own self image of itself. And by the West, I don't mean everybody who lives in the West. I'm talking about the ruling class. I'm talking about the capitalist ruling class and its media apologists and propagandists, their presentation to the people here is, we are so great and wonderful, and all of these other countries are demonic and evil, so why would anybody, why would African countries want to come to a summit with Vladimir Putin? Anyway, again, I want you to talk about the coups that are happening. I mean, we don't have to do it long, but I want I want you to help like a U.S. audience in particular capture the sentiment and feelings of Africans, which are not understood or properly presented in the Western mainstream media.
1: Sure. Well, I guess NPR, they missed the memo on all the Russian flags that have been flying across Niger and Mali and Burkina Faso. Every time each coup, we've seen those things come out. And one is that, take Niger, a country you know of a relatively small population, like 25 million people, has one of the biggest, you know, sources of uranium and of high quality uranium. Whilst the main population, I think it's like one in eight has access to electricity. It's like ridiculously low numbers. I think that's even a conservative estimate. Whilst one in three light bulbs in France gets its uranium directly from one of two mines just outside Arlit in Niger. And Niger, again, one of the poorest countries of the world, has been impoverished through processes facilitated, number one, by France, but then by different U.S.-led economic policies. Has also seen the impact of Libya, when NATO—and we haven't necessarily spoken about NATO right now—but when NATO destroyed Libya in 2011, as African leaders were, you know, on their way to propose a peace plan. NATO, you know, basically uses some, you know, so-called international laws, basically bombs the hell out of Libya, destroys its infrastructure. It had the highest human development index ranking in Africa at the time or prior to the bombing, had a huge project for what do you call it, an irrigation system in the Sahara, would have had huge ripple effects for the region in improving it. So people have now seen the, the role that the U.S. plays, have lived the reality of what France has done. And they see Russia standing up to the U.S., standing up to the West. I don't think necessarily people are like, in a sense, endorsing Russian political policy and our domestic policy. What they're seeing is there are people who are standing up to those who have not only for centuries played some active role in our domination through the African slave trade, through colonization, through the white settler states, the Anglo-American settler states, you know, the signing of the Treaty of Versailles that just basically said, while we're reorganizing the control of the world between us through the Berlin Conference. They've seen that those powers aren't interested in the development of African people, aren't interested in the development of their own people. And more and more people are starting to see that the U.S. has a huge problem of poverty, of violence, all those things that you, we haven't traditionally had access to, but are increasingly getting more access to. So for the people of Africa... Whatever you think of BRICS, whatever limitations it has politically or organizationally, it still symbolizes that an alternative organization of global South leading powers can take place and that they are concerned with the state-led new development economic models that have the potential to give the power back to the people, to pursue sovereign development, to you know, industrialize and to develop their economies in a way that could potentially serve the people. And so people don't see Russia as some kind of axis of evil. They see it as somebody who has the capacity economically and militarily to fight one of the biggest hegemons in the world, the United States.
0: Yeah, very, very important. You know, I was just thinking, as you mentioned Libya and britain france and the united states bombing the hell out of libya leading to the overthrow of the qaddafi government the lynching of a 70 year old head of state which hillary clinton said at the moment of his lynching she was giggling actually on video she was like we came we saw he died libya had the largest oil reserves in africa and it was also qaddafi had a great interest in pan-Africanism and was a primary funder of the African Union. And at that time in 2011, China and Russia were in the Security Council, the resolution that authorized the use of force, in other words, gave the US, Britain and France carte blanche, gave them a fig leaf of legitimacy and legality. Russia and China abstained. They could have vetoed that resolution. But they abstained. That was before Xi Jinping becomes president. And that's when Putin was no longer president. He then comes back into office after that. And when you think about this last decade where everything changed, where Russia becomes number one enemy over time, not just starting in February twenty-two, but you know, in 2014 with the coup, et cetera, et cetera, the coup in Ukraine. China, you know becomes enemy number one, the U.S. announces, Obama announced the pivot to Asia in 2011 at the same year that they destroyed the Libyan government. And the pivot to Asia is like at first kind of misunderstood. People weren't clear what it exactly meant, but we now know that within seven years, the U.S. had reoriented its military and foreign policy, identifying major power conflict with Russia and China as its top priority, meaning in all ways preparing for that eventuality. So when you look at this rapid change in global politics just in the last 10, 15 years, it's really remarkable. And again, that's why I want to thank you for joining our show and sharing your analysis because what we are trying to do here on the show, we're partisans, we're for the working class, we're for the oppressed, we're for people struggling for national liberation. But we're trying to do it within the sort of filter of looking at objective reality, assessing it. Partisans, but not people who are simply like looking at the world through glasses that give us the image that we want. We're trying to look at the world as it is. But one can certainly see that the world is changing in a big way. And the BRICS phenomena is a major example of it. Is it perfect? Obviously not. Is it explicitly anti-imperialist? No. Is it inherently anti-imperialist? Perhaps in some ways. Is it a block? Well, all of the people say it's not a block. It's an economic relationship. But in a way, the U.S. kind of views it as a block. And that, in a way, almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we're sort of have all of these sort of contradictions coming to a head very dramatically, very quickly in the world situation. With that said, and as we close, I want people to start to follow you, follow Tricontinental Research, subscribe to the newsletter, listen to the podcast. How do they do those things?
1: Well, I'm hoping we can put some links in the descriptor, but if you can follow me at my name as Michaela Erskog out there on twitter you can find the podcast on any podcast platform from spotify to we're even on boomplay the chinese one because we can't you know stay on spotify and apple all the time the world is diversifying but we you can otherwise find all our work at thetricontinental.org. or we're also on twitter in multiple languages and you can also check out we do a lot of collaborations with different groups. And I'm hoping that this kind of bricks, this kind of turn to the global South, this inward looking moment, we will hopefully be covering it more in more detailed studies that we can discuss in the future. So thank you so much for having me on, Brian. It was a real pleasure.
0: Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News.